at all of the campuses. It is good to be here with all of you. Are we ready for spring? I know Will mentioned it, I mean. I am ready for spring. Now, we're continuing in our series in the book of Luke. How many of you have been really enjoying this study? I mean, isn't it been powerful? And you know what? We, we got to honor Pastor Rex. He brings it every weekend, doesn't he? It's incredible. So let's just give him a round, huh? Encouragement. I know some of you are looking at me saying, I wish you were Rex. I know that. I do too. So we're going to be talking about commitment. One of my favorite stories about commitment is about a man named Charles Blondin. He was a famous tightrope walker in the 1800s, and he came to the States from France, where he lived, in 1859. And he came to attempt to do something that was never attempted before this time. He attempted to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so they strung a tightrope from the U.S. side of the falls all the way to the Canadian side of the falls. And in front of 10,000 screaming fans, he inched his way from the Canadian side all the way to the U.S. side of the falls. And when he arrived, the crowds were going crazy, chanting his name, Blondin, 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 he quieted the crowds. He said, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? Talk about an ego trip. And they all shouted, we believe, we believe, we believe. And then he said this, I am walking across this tightrope again to the Canadian side, but this time I will carry a person on my back. Do you believe I can do it? And they shouted, we believe, we believe, we believe. He quieted the crowds and he asked, which one of you will be that person? The crowds went dead. And then... Out of the crowd comes Harry Colcourt. It's Blondin's business manager. He must have saw a good thing going down the drains. And he had to act. And he did. And he climbs on Blondin's back. Could you imagine this? And before Blondin takes a foot on that tightrope to go to the Canadian side of this falls, he says these words to Harry. And I quote, Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord, you are Blondin. Until I clear this, be a part of me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. And he stayed on his back, which is insane. And over the next four hours, Blondin inched his way back to the Canadian side of the falls with his business manager on his back. I mean, talk about commitment. See, on that day, you had 10,000 screaming fans saying, we believe, we believe, we believe, but only one truly believed. Because believing is more than just saying, I accept the fact. Believing is putting your lives in the hands of the one to whom you say you believe. 10,000 fans but only one committed follower as evidenced by his actions. So as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at a passage today in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 
through 27. And this passage is all about being a committed follower of Christ. It's a heavy passage. Very heavy. And in this passage, Jesus asks a question of his disciples. It's a question that every one of us will have to answer for ourselves. The question is this, who do you say that I am? But before he asks that of his disciples, he asks the disciples to answer, who do the crowd say that I am? See, this questioning is happening towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, right before he's to go to Calvary. And so it's important that the disciples understand who he is and they confess it. It's also happening towards the height of his popularity, given all the signs and wonders and miracles that he's performed over the course of his two and a half plus years of public ministry. In fact, in the passage just before this, we read of how Jesus took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and he turned it into enough food to feed thousands of people. The crowds were moved by what they witnessed and what they experienced. And so Jesus asks the question, verse 18, who do the crowds say I am? And the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back life. In other words, you're no normal person. You're extraordinary. In fact, you see the tinge of the supernatural. We think you're a prophet of long ago that has come back to life. The people were moved by his wisdom and his insight and his understanding. You're a prophet. Now notice they did not say they think you're a, magi a magician using trickery to try to fool them. No, there was no doubt around the power of his miracles. The crowd saw them with their own eyes. They witnessed them firsthand. And he did a lot of them. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He healed people of incurable diseases. He gave sight to the blind. He calmed fierce storms at his command. He raised people from the dead. The crowds were blown away by him. They were big time fans and anywhere he went they followed wondering what he was going to do next what is what he was going to say next but they did not answer correctly you're a prophet but not the messiah you see the the, the crowds followed jesus but when following meant risk when following meant sacrifice to themselves, they bailed. In fact, the, the Apostle John says of the crowds in John 12, 42, 43, he said that many in the crowds actually believed, but, look at it with me, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. And, and hear me, if you were put out of the synagogue in the first century, it was a big deal. You were like a social outcast. You'd likely lose your job. And they feared that. Why? For they loved human praises more than the praise from God. You see, the crowds were fans, but not followers. They wanted to be close enough to Jesus for the benefit, but not so close that it would require Sacrifice. 
I wonder if sometimes we don't do the same thing. Oh, I want to be so close to Jesus for his grace. I want to go to heaven. I do not want to go to hell, but maybe not so close that it requires me to change my lifestyle or that it requires me to share my faith openly. You see, the crowds loved following him, but when following him meant risk or sacrifice, they bailed. And so to the question, who do they say that I am? General consensus? You're a prophet. You're a good human teacher. In fact, not much has changed. Millions of people today all over the world look at Jesus just like the crowds. He's a prophet. He's a good moral teacher, but not the Messiah. Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis said to people that think that way, he said this, and I quote, that is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense, he says, about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But then Jesus gets real personal. And in verse 20, he looks his disciples in the eyes and he asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, responding on behalf of all the disciples as they are nodding in agreement, says, you are God's Messiah. In parallel passages in Matthew 16, you may see this. You're the anointed one or you're the son of the living God. And you will notice, Jesus does not say, what are you, out of your mind? No. In response, he says this in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Right answer. He's the Messiah. But what Jesus says next is kind of interesting. He gives them a very stern warning. He strictly warns them not to tell this to anyone. Now hear me. The people, the Jewish people have been waiting years and years and years for the coming Messiah. And now he's saying, don't say a word. Most commentary writers would agree that the reason behind the warning not to say anything is because the people had a false concept of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And Jesus did not want to start a revolt around the wrong concept of him. You get a bit of a glimpse of this wrong concept in John 6, where the people actually devised a plan to take Jesus by force and to make him their king 
so that there could be a coup against King Herod and a liberation of the people from Roman occupation. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, fled. Dr. R. Kent Hughes, a commentary writer, said of this passage to have heralded throughout Palestine that Jesus was the Messiah could easily have incited a political movement staffed with loyal but unregenerate people. Not the right time. Don't say a word. But what Jesus says next in verse 22 really disrupts the lives of the disciples big time. I mean, here they are, just being told and it being confirmed by Jesus that the Messiah is here, and now he says this. The Son of Man, referring to Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I mean, those words shocked the disciples. They knew the Old Testament promises that the Messiah would establish his everlasting kingdom for his chosen people. And so no doubt Peter was thinking, you're the Messiah, you're our king, you're going to establish your kingdom on earth today. You're going to free us from Roman occupation today. We have reached the pinnacle. But now, Jesus, you're giving us a death announcement. And it made no sense. And Peter, being who he was, was not going to just let that happen. He was going to let Jesus know how he felt. Matthew 16, 22 Peter said this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block, but notice what he says here. You have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, you're thinking about your way and your plan, Peter, not mine. Now, no doubt Peter was concerned about Jesus. But I think he was a bit more concerned for himself. You're, you're the Messiah and we're on your side. That means peace and power and uh, popularity and comfortable lives. It's a new day. It's a new day. And Jesus rebukes him. Why? Because at that point in time, Peter was acting a bit more like a fan, close enough to Jesus for the benefit, but not so close that it would require a sacrifice. You see, Jesus did not come to this earth to make the lives of his disciples comfortable. He came to seek and save lost people. He came to carry out God's redemptive plan. Isaiah 53. He must be bruised for our inequities. He must be chastened for our peace. He must suffer transgressions for our transgressions. Now that's easy for us to understand this side of the cross given chronicled history. But hear me, this prophecy was so completely 
foreign to the disciples that when it actually happened and the Messiah was crucified, they were devastated, they were disoriented, they were full of fear. Not because Jesus didn't tell them what was going to happen, but because, hear me, they had their own picture of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. What about you? Do you sometimes want to put God in a box because he does not fit the picture we have as to what he ought to do and who he ought to be? Especially when we're going through some challenging times or we're confused the way Peter was and we see our will and our plan over here and it looks like God's plan and his will is way over here. It's like they're diametrically opposed and you want to get up and start shouting the way Peter did. No, God. Not your way. That's okay to do. You know, I find it very interesting that we see Peter comfortable enough to go to the one whom he just called God's Messiah and let him know how he felt. Now, he did get a verbal lashing, but he was comfortable enough to do it. I believe God honors a transparent heart. And when we go to him and say, man, I'm confused, Father, I think he honors that. We're just letting him know how we feel. But always remember, his ways are higher than our ways. And his plan is always better than our plan eventually. And I can almost envision Jesus stepping back after that tense exchange with Peter and saying, Peter, Peter, you're thinking short-term. I'm thinking long-term. You're thinking here and now. I'm thinking eternal. You're thinking small. I'm thinking big. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that God's plan required the cross. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die for the sins of the world to which all of us are saying, thank God. But don't miss verse 22b. But on the third day, he would rise again. And when he did, and he presented himself to the disciples as the resurrected Savior, they were no longer devastated and disoriented. Man, they were filled with hope. And they shouted, He lives! He lives! He lives! His plan is always better eventually. But in the moment, that plan did not seem better. And they were confused. And what Jesus says next, as I close out this passage, gets to the very heart of their confusion. It gets to the heart of what the disciples were struggling with. In fact, 
what the crowds were struggling with. And Jesus is saying this, if you want to be a committed follower of mine, you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to die to your self-centered ways. Look what Jesus said here. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. That's a picture of death in the first century. Ooh, they knew exactly what the cross was. That was literally a picture of death. It would be like take up lethal injection today. Daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now that is not a popular passage. Deny yourself. Take up your cross Lose yourself? Follow me? And yet they are the most often quoted words of Jesus in the Gospels. The one who saves their life will lose it, but the one who loses their life for me, for my sake, for the Gospels, will save it. You see it in Matthew 10, in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, in Luke Nine, you see it in Luke 14, Luke 17, and in John chapter 12. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I see the same thing said over and over and over again, and it's coming from Jesus, I'm thinking that's pretty important. So what does it mean? Well, what it does not mean is he's not calling us to have to die a physical death for him, and he's not calling us to not take care of ourselves or our loved ones. Paul said to Timothy, a believer doesn't take care of his families worse than the unbeliever. He's not saying that. And he's certainly not calling Christians to be miserable and run away from anything that even remotely looks like fun. No. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's so much deeper than that. When he says, deny yourself, take up the cross, lose yourself, follow me, He's saying, follow me from your heart. Be committed to me. Trust me more than you trust yourself. When he says, the one who loses their self for me, he's saying, value me more than you value you. In fact, more than you value anything else in this world. Even really good things, he's saying, you value me above them, like, your possessions, your pleasures, your career, your friends, your family, your spouse, your children. Now, I know some of you are thinking, man, that is so weird. But it's really not weird when you think about it. I mean, can we just be real honest with one another? Just, let's just imagine it's just you and I, we're talking over a cup of coffee or tea. Listen, if we put Christ first in our lives, 100%, 
and we lived by the values of Christ, and we died to our self-centered ways, listen to me now, the people around us would be pretty happy. They would. You know why? It's a lot easier to, die, to get along with dead people. You ever think about that? You know, people that are dead to their self-centered ways. They don't whine. They don't bicker. They don't complain. They don't think that life revolves around themselves. They're not full of arrogance. They're not full of drama. Do you hear me? See, life tends to work a lot better when we die to our self-centered ways. We make better fathers and mothers. We make better children. We make better employers and employees. If we could just live in line with the values of Christ and lose our self-centered ways, oh, our lives would just be so much better. It's often when we take control of our lives that we tend to mess things up. See, when we value God above all else, it requires a sacrifice. It requires a dying to ourself. And what that means is this, for believers, okay? For believers, what does it mean? It means that when he calls us to forgive the one who has wronged us, we forgive, even though there is a part of us that says, no, I don't want to. Or when he calls us to be generous with our time and our treasures and our resources, what he's blessed us with, we're to be generous, even though there is a part of us that says, no, it's a struggle. And when he calls us to love in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not easily angered, and then Paul adds, it is not self-seeking. We're to love in that kind of way, even though there is a part of us that says, no, it's a struggle. You see, being a committed follower and valuing God above all else requires a dying to ourselves. There's a parable that's all about valuing God above all else. It's just one verse. It's the parable of the hidden treasure found in Matthew 13, 44. And Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. See, in this parable, Jesus is the hidden treasure. And the man represents a committed follower who, upon finding the treasure, is willing to give it all up. Notice the attitude he has with joy for him. Now, do not miss the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not that you can earn or work or buy your way to God or to heaven or to Christ. No. No, we are saved by 
grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the hope of Christ. That is the treasure. The point is this. When we find him, when we find Christ, the hidden treasure, the natural response ought to be with the heart of gratitude, with the heart of joy, to give it all up for him because of what he's done for us. You notice the treasure is buried. It's kind of interesting. And the reason why is because many people in the world miss the treasure. They just kind of walk right on by it. It's so easy to miss God in this world. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life or to get sucked into the things of this world, the pride of life and the lust of the eye and this drive to want to accumulate more and more and we can completely miss God. Recently, I ran into a business acquaintance. I hadn't seen him in a little over a year. I ran into him in the airport of all places. And he told me such some horrible news that his wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer and she does not have long to, to live. And as a life event like that would tend to do, it begins to, to get you to think, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And that's what it did to this man. He's a very successful businessman an entrepreneur who had started businesses and he's just done so well in the world of business, accumulated a fortune, frankly. And I don't believe he's a man of faith from what I understand. And he looked at me and he said, I I'm scared. He said, you know me, Pat, I have lived my life accumulating and building and accumulating and building and accumulating. I spent almost all my waking time doing that. And he said, I can't take it with me. And it's not going to help me make my wife better. I can't get her health back. And then he looked at me, and it's just right in the eyes, and he said, I feel empty. And my mind went to this passage where Jesus poses a rhetorical question. What good is it if you gain the whole world, everything, and miss God? You forfeit your very life and your very soul. What good is it? The answer is obvious. It's no good. And yet, so many people live that way and they miss God. And then Jesus says as he ends this passage, whoever is ashamed or embarrassed, if you will, of me and my word, I will be ashamed of them. And yet, so many people are ashamed of God. Think of the crowds. I mean, they believed but they would not openly acknowledge faith in him. Why? 
Because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Why? Because they loved human praises more than the praises of God. See, the world often misses the buried treasure. And Jesus, in fact, told us that. In Matthew 7, 14, he said, Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Why? Because it's hard to die to ourselves. Right after Jesus said that, he's closing out the great Sermon on the Mount. And he gives us a glimpse into Judgment Day. And he said something very sobering. He said, there will be some, in fact, many people that think they are followers when they are not committed followers. He said, this is what they're going to say to me. They will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I have prophesied. I preached in your name. And I healed in your name. And I cast out demons in your name. I mean, they helped people. And Jesus says to them, away from me, I never knew you. I mean, they thought they were followers, but apparently they were not. And it was not because they did not understand the orthodox of the faith. They called him Lord, Master. It was not because they were not emotionally engaged in the faith. They, they said, Lord, Lord. And anytime you double a word in the Semitic language, it's an expression of emotion. When Jesus said, for example, Martha, Martha, emotional engagement. When King David's son Absalom died, he said, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. They were emotionally involved. And it was not because they were not engaged or active in service. Man, they were active in service. And all those things are beautiful. They're wonderful. And they are present in the life of committed followers. But apparently, in and of themselves, they do not make us committed followers. Do you know what they were missing? Him. They missed the buried treasure. They did not value Christ. You say, how do you know they didn't value him? Because Jesus told us so. Away from me, I never knew you. In other words, there was no relationship, and when you value him, you have a relationship with him. You know what else I think as to why they didn't value him is because they were pretty arrogant. I mean, they, they look at they came to the judgment to the creator of the heavens and the earth, and all they could do and say is, look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm so great, I'm so great, I'm so great. 
I healed and I taught in your name and I did all these wonderful things. I, 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 I. They never died to themselves. They may have been fans, perhaps, but not committed followers who died to their self-centered ways. You know, valuing him above all else and being committed followers, not easy. It's hard. I mean, the crowd struggled with it. John said, for they loved human praise more than the praises from God. The disciples struggled with it. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And we will struggle with it. We're not perfect. We all fall short. And that's why in this passage, Jesus says, take up your cross daily. The apostle Paul often said, I die daily. It's not a once and done. It's a lifelong process of drawing closer and closer and closer to him. I love the statement, true followers are made in a moment by the grace of God, but proven over a lifetime. See, the call is not for perfection. The call is for progress and for change and to be made more and more into the image of Christ with the passage of time. But hear me, friends. That change will never happen from the old self to the new self in Christ will never happen unless we depend upon him. And here's the point. It's only when we value him that we stay connected to him. It's only when we value him that we stay connected to him. Regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what's going on in our own hearts, regardless of how often we fail and we make mistakes and we mess up, we stay connected to him. You know why? He's our source of strength. Fans do not stay connected to him. Committed followers do. Jesus said it this way. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you. Connection. You will bear much fruit. You will live a life the way God designed it for you, for your good and for his glory. But apart from me, look what he said. You can do nothing. Can't do it. Can't do it. Just a few verses later, Jesus said to the committed follower who values him and stays connected to him, he said this in verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I don't know about you, but I, I could use some more joy and some more peace. 
See, God wants to bless all of us. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. And he has a perfect plan for our lives. And don't miss that in this passage. It's a heavy passage. But he says, the one who denies themselves, the one who takes up his cross, the one who loses is himself or herself. For me, they're going to find their life the way God intended it, with meaning and purpose and impact for your good and for his glory. Jeremiah said this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But we have to come. And we have to be committed. You know, one of the beautiful things about the grace of God is that it doesn't matter how far we've gone. It doesn't matter of the things we've done. It doesn't matter how bad our past is. We're all sinners, man. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. He just wants to have a relationship with every single one of us. And he's just saying, come. True followers are made in a moment by the grace of God. Hey, you remember the story about Blondin? When Harry, his business manager, gets on his back and Blondin said, Harry, look up. You are no longer Harry. You are Colcord. Be one with me and whatever you do, don't try to do any balancing on your own. You remember that? I think that's good theology. And I can almost envision Jesus saying that same thing to us when we put our faith in him. Look up. Pray to your heavenly Father and always maintain an eternal perspective. You are no longer you. You were bought with a price. You are a child of of the living God. You are an ambassador for Christ. He gives us a brand new identity. Be one with me. Don't try to do any balancing on your own. In other words, don't take control of your life. Remain in me. Stay connected to me. And I'll do the work. I'll get you to the other side. And you will live life with meaning and purpose and impact for your good and for his glory. See, on that day in 1859, 10,000 fans screamed, we believe, we believe, we believe. But only one truly believed. Because believing is more than just saying, I accept the fact. Believing is putting our lives 
in the hands of the one to whom we say we believe. See, the question is, do we trust and value Christ enough to be committed to him? And I close with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Jesus calls a person, he bids them come and die. And when we do, we will experience life as God intended it for our good and for his glory. Father God, This is a heavy, heavy passage. And yet we thank you for the word. And Father, I just pray for everyone that's here, everyone that hears my voice. You know where they're at in their journey to you. And my prayer, Father God, is that you would touch their lives where they're at and that they would be moved by the beauty of the cross and that they would totally understand the depths of your love for them and that no matter how far we have gone from you, that your love is never ending and your grace is so sufficient that if we just come to you, you will do the rest. And we are so thankful to have a God like you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do, for all that you will continue to do through a body of believers that loves you. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. And I would like to invite the uh, ushers, please, to come forward as we receive our tithes and offerings. And I would like to invite any of you who would like prayer.